Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan. With me, as always, is Gareth. Oh, hello, Alan. <laughs> Heidi, hi. Ho de ho. Yeah, we nailed it that time. <laughs> <laughs> I love. Uh, well, obviously, we're talking about Heidi High, but yeah, I do love the announcements where she goes, "Oh, oh, and <laughs> but what's this?" <laughs> Oh, well, we are here for a new series. We like to start with a banger, Gareth. We do. And we've never, in our previous episodes, what, we 18 episodes in? Mm -hmm. We have not done uh, Perry and Croft. We've not done any David Croft. We have been watching Heidi High. Made in the 80s, set in 1959 slash 60. Yeah. So it is one of their period sitcoms of Perry and Croft. Well, let's talk about let's talk about uh, memories of Heidi High. Are you yes, are you, yes. you old enough to remember no. Heidi High? Or are you too young? No, I'm not. No. See, I do remember it. I remember. So it was on from 1980 to 1988. So that for me, that was mm. the age of five to thirteen, and yeah. I, I kind of remember really enjoying it as a kid, and then being really bored of it as a teenager. Which I think that's probably mm. more to do with my age rather than the show itself. <laughs> yeah. However. Yeah. It is oh. interesting, and we'll talk about this more as we go on. It's interesting that when the, there's one major cast change, the show kind of changes as well. And it was interesting seeing yes. that change. With my memory as a kid, oh, it got rubbish later. And I'm not, I wouldn't go that far, mm. but it definitely changed. Yes, I think it changes as it goes along as well. And we'll talk about that a bit later, I think. This is set, of course, in a holiday camp. Yeah. Uh, in, a, in a sort of time when they, they don't exist now, but in the 80s... Things have changed a bit. Obviously, there is a sense of nostalgia to this mm. show. But of course, you, Gareth, you were inspired by watching Heidi High as a child, obviously, because you went and worked in a holiday camp as a teenager. I did. I did. But well, the, the, I worked at the Butlins in Skegness. I did three summers there in the 90s after this. And Maplins is obviously a very thinly veiled pastiche of Butlins, Joe Maplin being mm. Billy Butlin. So obviously, yeah, you're right. Things had changed by the 90s. But there was a lot of nostalgia there for me. Maplins in 1959 and Butlins in 1995 were not poles apart. There was a, there was a lot that I could relate to. Well, I never worked there, but I certainly took a, many a childhood holiday at Butlins. Mm. So I have memories of that. And there was, yeah, again, certainly things I recognized yeah. about Maplins. Well, the, and so I guess the other thing we should tell people is that the episode that we're going to return to and look at in a bit more detail is mm-hmm. series two, episode two, Peggy's Big Chance. As the podcast uh, winds on a little, we'll talk in a bit more detail about that episode. But give us a bit mm-hmm. of background first, Alan. Well, I think background is Perry and Croft, isn't it? Jimmy Perry and David Croft first worked together in terms of TV sitcom Dad's Army. Of course. And it was a huge success. Followed that up with Eight and a Half Hot Mum, yeah. which was already well into its prime by the time Heidi High was started. Let's just get the timings here then. So when did Dad's Army finish? Dad's Army, 68 to 77. Right, so that was done and dusted. It ain't Half Hot Mum was 1974 to 1981. Okay, so there's some So there's a little overlap. crossover of all of these, yeah. And then Heidi High, it was actually... The pilot was 1980, 1st of January 1980, so it was filmed in 79. Ah. And then the next, and but the the first series didn't start until the following year. So that was just about when it ain't half up and was uh, ending. That was their last series that year. Right. So there's this kind of crossover of 
you know, you can you can work on more than one thing at a time, especially when one thing's mm. up and running. You can start concentrating on creating something new. But Jimmy Perry, I want to talk about. I tell you what, David Croft's got a lot of major name sitcoms, and I feel like we're going to have opportunity to talk to him about him again at some other yeah. point. So rather than dwelling too much on a lot of background information, let's let's concentrate on Jimmy Perry today. Okay, so we we, we hopefully we'll do something else that David Croft has done in the near future, and then undoubtedly, yeah. But Jimmy Perry, okay, like so, let's look at those sitcoms again. Dad's Army, Ain't Half Hot Mum, Heidi High. Yeah, have a guess at what Jimmy Perry's general early life biography is <laughs> well was he uh was he uh military did the uh did the whole acting thing in the army yes yes he did so he was born in 1923 yeah so during the war he was still a teenager and he was served in the home front as a young pike like boy uh-huh and then he was slightly mothered. <laughs> of course. Uh, then he did eventually serve in India and Burma as part of concert party. Interesting. And then after the war, he he did train at RADA and uh, on a serviceman's scholarship. And then he did some summer seasons as a redcoat at Butlins. But Jimmy Perry, where do you get your crazy ideas? <laughs> <laughs> that is that's amazing, isn't it? Talk about talk about write what you know, mining exactly. personal experience. And hey, do you know what? It works. Oh, it we, works. Those shows uh, all work. And I think the beauty of them is that there's obvi- they're obviously coming from reality. First rule of comedy, Gareth, is you must have reality. Uh, but um, and but then he he went on to become the actor manager at, at Watford and ran a theatre for quite a long time with his wife before becoming uh, perhaps more well known with Dad's Army. Uh, right. well, more well known as a writer, he was an actor. In fact, when he wrote Dad's Army, the idea was he would play Walker. Okay, because he would have been about the right age for that, and they talked him out of it. I don't know if that's a comment on his acting abilities, or they mm. just p- would prefer to have him concentrating on <laughs> the, the behind the scenes. So Dad's Army was the start of his success as a writer. Did he ever do any more acting, or was that had he made a transition to writing then? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, not to say he never did any acting, but yeah, he was certainly. That was his job. He was a writer slash producer then. And and working with uh, David Croft seems to, you know, that there was obviously magic there because mm. he has done a couple other things without David Croft, but they were no by no means big successes. But having said that, like I say, these sitcoms laid over each other. He was working on Dad's Army, Ain't Now Hot Mom, Heidi High, and then You Rang Me Lord. That's 25 years yeah. in which he was constantly yeah. working on one of those shows. And these are big mainstream shows, aren't they? So that was his career. By the time You Rang the Lord finished, he was 70 years old. Okay. So no worries. <laughs> he was Good a bit late on. starter because he, he was in his 40s when Dad's Army started, but that's because he was working as an actor manager before that. You know, mm-hmm. he, was, he was working. So that, that, that's his kind of career in a nutshell. But I think we, we can see those themes that run through that. Yeah, they're, they're all period set sitcoms. Mm. They're kind of based around things he's known himself. They're nostalgic, but... Only kind of one generation back. I, I feel like the whole yeah. point of that is that, oh, we can remember that. Our audience can remember that. And I think perhaps You Rang My Lord is an exception there. Uh, and it's the least successful of the lot. Is that the same mm-hmm. reasons? I don't know. Also, what Perry... Uh, and, and, and think David what David Croft brought to it was a real slick production quality. He, they were efficient. They were quick. That they were cheap, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. by the BBC stand. You know, it was like they got the job done. They weren't messing about and spending extra money on extra days filmings. And the other thing I would tie up with all those is casting. They they cast their pieces very well. Yeah, 
or at least the leads. But they, were, they, they always had these, all those three sitcoms have these large ensemble casts where mm. you've got a concert party, a team of yellow coats, a, you know, a platoon. Yes, there are stars, there are characters that carry the story, but there is a crew behind mm-hmm. them. I will say, and I think Heidi High does fall into this a little bit, I think there's too many characters mm. uh, a lot of the time. Yeah. I think certainly David Croft's other material, like LOLO, is particularly bad for it. It's just yes. so many characters. Like, oh, we have to do something with all these characters. Yes. And I think it suffers for that. The, the, these earlier ones are a little bit more uh, controlled, perhaps, is the word. Mm. But let's talk about that a little bit as we go along, because there is a big cast to Heidi High. Mm-hmm. And I think some of them get a little bit lost in the background. But the the other thing that um, I will say for Jimmy Perry and David Croft, people talk about them. You see interviews with actors worked about them. They love them, and they, Jimmy Perry really? particularly, like he was a father figure. He he, he treated them, everyone like his family. Putting a cast together that like each other and work together well, but also work with the production company well, and the and you know your technicians, your cameramen, it's the same people every time. But that's what I was going to ask. What like so Croft and Perry write this thing. I know what the actors do. You know, are Croft and Perry there on set all day, every day? Are they what we might call showrunners now? Uh, like how mm. how involved are they? Yes, yes. David Croft, I mean, David Croft is literally the credited producer. Right. And as I understand, Jimmy Perry was essentially a producer as yeah. well. They, they, they were the creative force right. and certainly trusted by, in this case, the BBC good. to get the job done. So they were there. That's good. I mean, real kind of company guys. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't trying to... Mm-hmm. break boundaries here you know they were they were delivering a good solid product that new would sell and i saw a little interview with them and jimmy perry said i don't think there's any point in doing a show unless you're going to do 60 episodes you just you just get going and get these characters set up then you, then you can start working with them the idea of yeah. doing a faulty towers two series was completely um you know not that's on interesting line. isn't it because I'm not this... saying I agree with that, but that's what yeah, he said. We have this narrative, don't we, that, you know, Faulty Towers is the perfect sitcom and Ricky Gervais modelled himself on that. And all, all this this idea that two series of six is the perfect way to do it. You know, is that true? I think with Heidi High as, a, as an example to work with, you can see that, you know, it can be a little hit and miss, but you get an affection mm-hmm. for the characters. You really feel like you're part of the family, you know, and you, you kind of get a little bit more drawn in. Having said that, I... I could have done with Heidi High ending after series five. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, LOLO certainly went on too long. <laughs> can know. we, can I, I, I dare say we are going to cover LOLO at some point, but can I just, can I just pick you up? Cause you seem to refer to it as LOLO as if it's a policeman. <laughs> LOLO. Sorry. LOLO. Oh, sorry. It's LOLO. <laughs> like it's actually spelled apostrophe A. Hello, hello. Well, you don't have to do the accent, mate. Just stop saying LO. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it with a Gordon K. Yorkshire accent in the tradition. <laughs> Let's jump into our episode. That seems like the best place to go. That's, that's about as much background as you need, I think. So, Series 2, Episode 2, Peggy's Big Chance, and we open in Jeffrey's chalet, mm-hmm. and he is in a what looks like a sort of dressing gown, no trousers on, and because Ooh. Peggy has been pressing his trousers. Yeah. And she, she comes in, and she's uh, she's ironed his trousers, and because she's so conscientious, she's also ironed the pound note that was in his pocket. <laughs> so we got we got our first two characters here. So let's talk about Jeffrey first. So he's the boss. He's the entertainment mm-hmm. manager, and he's the posh guy. He's the posh yes. guy. Joe Maplin likes to bring in a posho. Keep the grunts in line. Yeah, and I think this is straight up, it's class 
uh, warfare. Well, we we get. I mean, obviously, Dad's army is literally built on the idea of class um, Mm -hmm. class conflict. You have a character in It Ain't Half Up, Mum, as well, don't you? Who who university educated? (laughs) Yeah, but over and above that, in in the army, you've got the officer class. You've got, so, your N- you've got your NCO and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It, yeah, there's a whole hierarchy there. And, and, and again, we're playing with that here. And I think it's, a, it's great fodder for comedy because yeah. if you have an authority figure, you can push against them. If you have an authority figure who's hapless, yeah. it's perfect. You can take advantage of them. But then you have this conflict of why are they in charge anyway? And sure. back in the day, perhaps not so much these days, but yeah, it's because they were posh. That's all university educated. That's it. Yeah. And it's particularly relevant here. You know, Jeffrey Fairbrother here is not only unqualified for the job, but also actually useless at it. Yeah, he's, he's incompetent terrible as well. at the job. He knows he is and feels bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so in, in series one, we, we set him up, or in the pilot actually, we set him up that he's a university professor in... An archaeologist. Uh, archaeologist. And he's just bored. He's sick of it. He's not what he wants. He wants a new challenge and he wants to do something that's going to take him out of his comfort zone. And so for whatever reason, he takes this job at uh, Maplin's as the entertainments manager. We get a really nice scene in that pilot where he's talking to his mother. His mother's mortified that he's going to go and work in this uh, holiday camp. That's another example of the way the country's going to the dogs. We've lost the empire. Eden's gone. And hordes of teddy bear boys are tearing up the cinema seats every time they hear that dreadful little cockney man strumming his guitar and singing about a little white ball. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great setup. (laughs) If If you're doing a period piece, how do you place it in time? That is how you place it in time. Yeah. And Jeffrey, of course, is, is, is sort of, he's aware of his privilege. Um, doesn't quite check his privilege, but nope. he's certainly aware of it. He's, there's a guilt about it and he, and he wants to do well. And I think that's important, obviously, because if he was just, and, and perhaps something we'll talk about later with Clive mm. Dempster. Yeah. If he was just taking advantage of all that privilege, it, it's a different vibe. You have a lot less sympathy. I, 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 I like Jeffrey, even though he is useless and he is, you know, in charge. And everyone else is having to, you know, bail him out, essentially. I like him. I like him. He's a nice presence. Yes, indeed. And you're not the only one who likes him, Gareth. Uh, (laughs) Gladys Pugh likes him. We'll we'll get to Gladys in a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's a, there's a, I I mean, uh, saying sexual tension would be understatement. (laughs) Like there is daggers drawn, no man's land tension. Between them. <laughs> Let's come back to that. Yeah. Okay. We'll come back to that. Let me ask you while we're in this chalet scene here yeah. in uh, in Jeffrey's chalet. Let me ask you about chalets in holiday yeah. camps. I can't remember well enough of my time in Butlins, but I'm pretty sure we had toilets in the chalets. <laughs> I think that had moved yeah. on by the 90s. Well, in the 90s, well, in, first of all, the word chalet is, I, I think that is a triumph of marketing. That was a classic Billy Butlin move <laughs> because they yeah. were sheds. We used to call them sheds, but you know, it sounds posh and it sounds French, a chalet. Chalet. And that was, that was, you know, uh, Billy Butlin didn't invent the word, of course, but he popularized it. And they, uh, did you notice that Ted Bovis refers to him as shallots, <laughs> which I quite liked. But uh, yeah, so the chalet that Jeffrey's in there, it's just one room. It's the sort of one room with a door and a window. He's got a bed in it. The other characters who are not in the officer class share. They, they, there are two beds in the rooms. Mm-hmm. And that is not dissimilar. So when I worked there in the 90s, we, the, the staff were in the worst accommodation. Uh, it, it was like a three-bedroom place. So it was a larger version of that. So I had a bedroom that looked like that. And then there were three of us plus 
a toilet, a bathroom. So we did have a, a, a plumbed-in toilet. But, you know, my memory of those sh- uh, sheds is that they were freezing cold. There was no insulation. Mm. for. Well, they were cold and you could hear everything going on around you. There was no insulation yeah. in that sense either. Um, so I, I kind of, I saw those chalets in Heidi High with a, with a, a, a due sense of nostalgia and a shiver of cold. <laughs> yeah, and they really are just a box with a bed in it and a sink mm. in the corner, you know. Perhaps that works for a sitcom. It's, uh, I, I suspect they only had one chalet set and then yes. just quickly threw a new bed and and you know put the wallpaper into... up for barry and yvonne yeah exactly nice and easy you could throw that together in three minutes uh just speaking of sets by the way i think in terms of sets we have a chalet the main staff room connected mm-hmm. to uh, jeffrey's office that's the main set and then we've got the milk bar or the the laughing cow yeah. milkshake yeah. bar i think those are the only kind of proper main sets everything else is location shoots i was going to ask this so as we were talking about the interior of the chalet there that we also get a, a shot of peggy outside and what's mm-hmm. the where was it actually filmed was it was it filmed at a holiday camp or is it in a yeah. military barracks which is basically the same thing <laughs> no it was a holiday camp yeah yeah, uh, obviously it was a bit worse for wear. Apparently they had to tart it up a bit. You know, they they were making this 20, 25 mm. years hence. Mm. So they they had to tart it up a bit to make it look um, a bit newer. It wasn't Butlins. I think they tried to film at Butlins and they said, piss off, you're making us look bad. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had this we've had this brief scene here with Peggy and you know what we what we see here about Peggy is that she is conscientious, she's she wants to please, you know, she's mm. done a good job for him. And that's that sums up her character. You know, we can uh, she is a little annoying, Peggy, it has to be said, but she is <laughs> good-hearted and uh you know, she's desperate to be a yellow coat. That's that's her. Oh yeah. That's that underpins her entire character, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, Sue Pollard. Do you want to talk about Sue Pollard? Let's quickly? talk about Sue Pollard because she's a, an undeniable presence and the breakout star of the show, mm. the most likable character, probably. I think so. So, yeah, certainly most endearing character. Here's an interesting perspective looking back. My memory is that Peggy was really annoying. Mm-hmm. Is it just that Sue Pollard's really annoying? <laughs> Is that just what I'm remembering from her being on Blankety Blank and Wogan and whatever else she was on in the, the time? Because I, I really warmed to Peggy Olerin Shaw. I thought she was lovely. Yeah, I think when you see it in, in context in the character, you yeah, she is a knife, but she, she is also extremely likable and yeah. honest and true and loyal and all this sort of positive things. But it has an undeniable eccentricity that appears to just be Sue Pollard if you ever see her in in real life or anything she does seems to be exactly that way. From what I understand, they, Perry and Croft had met Sue Pollard and kind of said, we need to do something with her. (laughs) What had she done before? What, what, What was she before this? I mean, she started out as like a club singer. Uh-huh, okay. And she she was on Opportunity Knocks in the seventies. Right, did a lot of work in musicals, musical theatre stuff. But her first TV appearance was in a sitcom called Two Up Two Down. It's nineteen seventy nine. Just did one series, and it's about this newly married couple who come home from honeymoon to their house, and these two hippie couple have squatted in their house, and they just have to oh. get on with it and live together. <laughs> and ooh, Fine. like what crazy, what crazy shenanigans. Anyway, so Sue Pollard was the hippie, the 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 woman of the hippie couple. Okay. 
so that kind of went nowhere, but it obviously brought a bit of notice. That's the same year that they shot the pilot for Heidi High. Mm-hmm. And like I say, I think um, from what I understand, Perry and Croft had met her uh, or had arranged a meeting with her just in a kind of like, oh, you seem like an interesting character. Like, what can mm. we, maybe we can work with you. And she made enough of an impression that they were like, well, let's make something <laughs> that will work for her. And so obviously Peggy is, is a perfect fit. The potty Shelley made. Potty's a good word. I think that there's a, there's an episode later on towards the end where she gets a chance to be a yellow coat for the day and she goes absolutely mad you know she it's, it's really over the top and cartoonish because she's so excited and it's like she's on some crazy drugs that's super Pollard. i think in these earlier <laughs> episodes she's being peggy Ulrenshaw and she's it's it's a lot sweeter a much nicer character <laughs> yeah i i went to an event fairly recently as super Pollard was there and yeah it's pretty much just how she is now like she's yeah. 70, 73 or something now, and she's uh, she's still the same. Where dresses like dresses like a child's imagination. <laughs> and, See, I think that's just, quite sweet. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's very endearing. I don't know if you could live with her, but um, <laughs> it's it's a she's a presence. She's certainly a powerful. Yeah, presence. I think I think I know what you mean. And you know that that personality came through, and that made her a bit of a star, like a, beyond being an actor. But she was a celebrity. She was on Blankety Blank. She she was a presenter mm, and yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And perhaps the acting work has taken a back seat to that. But then she was in You Rang the Lord, which came straight after this, and then Oh, Dr. Beeching yeah. Yeah. as well, which was a David Croft show. I mean, in, in You Rang the Lord, she's the same, really. In in Dr. Beeching, is a bit more kind of relaxed, but we don't. I'm not getting a great sense of range <laughs> of, of acting. I get you. But that's fine. She and she does well off it. She's in. She's there's quite a memorable episode of Gimme 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 in which she appears. Right. Uh, she's done a lot of you know musical theatre, panto, that sort of thing. Yeah. I tell you what though, surprisingly little I was thinking in terms of the big celebrity shows. I don't think she's been on the dancing or the jungle. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. Or point. those sorts of things. She does do those celebrity appearances, but she doesn't seem to do the ones where you have to commit for like six weeks. That is surprising. You would think she'd be prime candidate for that sort of thing. Mm, yeah, uh, but she certainly um, yeah applied a trade off of being Sue yeah. Pollard. Sure. Okay, back to our episode. Back to us. Uh, back to Jeffrey's chalet, and so Peggy leaves, and in comes Gladys. Uh, and this is awkward because he hasn't got his trousers on yet, and Gladys is mm. focused sexual predator. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> isn't, isn't she just and just blatantly staring at his legs? Yeah, a lovely physical comedy bit where she's staring at his legs. He realizes she's looking at and. Mm. He f- zips up the t- fly of his trousers, even though he's not that he's holding. Them. Yeah. But it, it, it was a beautiful moment. It really worked nicely, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about... I want to talk about the relationship here, which is one of the absolutely yeah. core relationships to the success of Heidi High between Gladys yes. and Jeffrey. But before we do that, let's divert and talk about Ruth Maddock. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, Ruth Maddock, she had worked back uh, 20 years prior to this. She'd worked with Jimmy Perry. Okay. In theatre, she'd been at the Watford Theatre where he'd, he'd been. Oh, I see. So she knew him from way back. Uh, so at some point, you know, he had this character and thought of her and, and got her in to read for it. But she just, you know, odd TV credits and things. But this was a big break uh, mm. in terms of becoming a household name and all that sort of thing. 
I'll tell you what though. Here's a here's a niche little um, sitcom connection. Her husband uh, yeah. at the time, Philip Maddock. She did later marry someone else, but obviously where she gets the Maddock name. Yeah, he's an actor as well and had done done a fair bit of sitcom stuff. But he's he has a very specific sitcom legacy moment. <laughs> Go on, because I feel like I know that name. Go on. Well, you know, in Dad's Army. Yeah. What's the most famous moment in Dad's Army? Don't tell him, Pike. Your name shall also go on the list. That's Philip That's Maddock. Maddock. <laughs> Playing oh, wow. the U-boat commander. Of How marvellous. <laughs> what, what a great little moment in sitcom history. Yeah. That is, that is falling through the bar famous, that one. <laughs> so Ruth Maddock was married to him at that, at that point anyway. They certainly had split up by the 80s. In terms of sitcom, the only other thing I found for Ruth Maddock was in 2009, a show called Big Top. Big okay. Top is sort of a circus thing. Amanda Holden was in it. Oh, right. Okay. I don't remember that at all, I'm afraid. But yeah, but that, that's it really. Um, not a lot of you know sitcom you just, connections. I, I had a question that. there about, about Ruth Maddox's age when this was made. But, but I want to broaden it out. And mm. that, that was a thing I kept clanging on a little bit. Is that the, the Yellow Coats, the entertainment staff... They're all sort of in their late 30s and 40s, aren't they? Which is not realistic. <laughs> you know, you go to Butlins and all the red coats are 22. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, some of the yellow coats are specifically mentioned that they're young, but. Now Gladys is the senior yellow coat and she's there and a uh, sports organizer. You know, she's not just mm. uh, a bog standard yellow coat. But what, I mean, yeah, she's, well, I'm guessing Ruth Maddock was about 40 by now. What's the, she, what, what she age was is the character 43, supposed to be? So yeah, she was what? 37 when the show started yeah right, okay and definitely by the time the show runs for eight years and it's only set over one year <laughs> it sure. starts to show a bit more doesn't it yeah <laughs> uh, simon cadell when the show started was um 30 yeah and looks about 45 yeah <laughs> so, well you've got that <laughs> but he's because he's got that oxbridge kind of uh, yeah old yeah he looks like an oxbridge professor and could be 50 if you told me he was 50 i would have believed you <laughs> hey like, talk about simon cadell though um he's got a bit more of a theatrical lineage yeah we missed him out let's talk about him his cousin apparently so i read on the on the internet his cousin is guy signer oh yeah from who Al- was in from, Hello, from what program was he in Alan? <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> very good, very good. And his sister is uh, um, Selena Cadell, who is one of those people, the name might not particularly sp- uh, spring to you, but you, you see her face, you go, oh, God, yeah, okay. I know her. I've seen her in all sorts of stuff. Um, he is a bit posh in real life. He went to school with Giles Brandreth. That's pretty posh, isn't it? <laughs> okay. And and came up through the theatre circuit. Again, this is the show he's best remembered for. And he married Rebecca Croft. He married David Croft's daughter yeah. in 1986. So presumably met her through his connections, you know, uh, through this show. But like I say, that's, that really shows that they were a tight-knit group. You know, <laughs> the sort of thing where they would you would get invited over to the family home for dinner and, and, and Sunday lunch or something. No, like I know that, that- we're going to talk in a while about when Simon Goodell left, didn't he? And I know that he died mm-hmm. quite young, but but he why did he leave? He, I know he died after he'd left. It wasn't, you know, that wasn't the reason he left. Do we know why he, he decided to move on? Well, apparently, according, Ruth Maddox says that he made that decision really early on, mm. uh, like in the first series, and told her, and she, and but said, "Don't tell anyone." But I'm not sticking this out. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of, I'm not gonna. What do you do? Five or six seasons? Five, yeah, yeah, five seasons. So you know, that's a lot. That's four years or whatever it long yeah. took to. Perhaps he's one of those people where the sudden fame doesn't sit very well and just mm. feels like an mm. intrusion. Who knows? But he apparently made that decision fairly early on. He did do another sitcom just after in 1987. Did a sitcom called Life Without George for a couple of series of that. 
and it was um, it was written by Penny Croft. Ah, well, that sounds like it might be connected. Another one of David Croft's daughters, so it would right. have been his sister-in-law at the time. Sure. So there's a little bit of incestuousness about yeah. the whole thing, but uh, still. But yeah, he died very young, had a heart attack at age 42. Mm. And and then died of cancer. I think it was in uh, you know forty five. He was you know so so very young, heavy smoker apparently. Yeah. So read into that what you will. Mm. But, but yeah, um, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. And in terms of his performance here, when I first watching it, I I don't think it's Simon Cadell's fault. But I think there is an issue with having a character that absolutely sucks the energy out of the room, uh-huh. and it's deliberate. That yeah. is what he's supposed to be doing, but I just think it works too well. Huh. <laughs> okay. So not only does it stall the comedy of the world that he's in, it stalls the energy, but it stalls the show as well. It stalls our sitcom show. Okay, that's interesting. I don't, I don't think I picked that up. I, I, I quite like his awkwardness. I quite enjoy how, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when he interacts with Ted, and, and you know Ted's constantly trying to get one over on him. I, I, mm-hmm. I like that. I, I like the... It's not even like they're circling each other. Ted's circling him. Him. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I quite enjoy the I quite enjoy the imbalance of power there. Yeah, yeah. I I missed him when he was gone. Definitely. I will talk about that change later. But I think while I was watching the specific episode, sometimes it's just like, oh god, right? Yeah, God, this guy's just mm. crushing everything. Mm. But I I I think the character is nice. I think you know he has this authority every now and then, uh, but then has no confidence in it. And whereas Ted is all confidence, mm. no power. Although the power he he has, he wields as much as possible. Sure. We'll come back to Ted in a sec. So we talked about Ruth Maddock and Simon Cadell. Let's talk about this relationship then between the two characters. I th- and this is one of my problems with this relationship as opposed to the one we get later on with squadron leader Clive. At no point does Jeffrey Fairbrother show any interest in Gladys. Mm. And in fact very specifically pushes her away at every opportunity and tries yep. to put her off. And yet she persists. <laughs> she, and so, Nevertheless, she persists. And so it, it does feel quite predatory, like you described her earlier. It does. It doesn't feel like a will-they-won't-they. They. It feels like a sexual predator <laughs> attacking its it, it does. And, and yeah, the dynamic is different. I'm not saying, oh, imagine if it was a man, if it was the other way around. That would be a different yes. dynamic. But but nevertheless, he's uncomfortable. I think he's supposed to be uncomfortable. Like that's where the comedy lies. But but to me, sometimes it just gets a little bit too much. I'm like, oh god, <laughs> when they're just in a room alone together. It's almost, it, metaphorically, not literally. He's, he's sort of got his back up against the wall, and she's breathing down his neck. You know. And I think the idea is that he would if he could, but he's still married, and he's like worried about that, and he's kind of thinking, oh, I'm, I don't want to get a divorce. He's separated from mm. his his wife, but he still thinks maybe it could work, and the the idea of divorce is kind of shameful. He's certainly not going to give her grounds. Yes. So that's the thing. And I think the idea is that, oh, he definitely would, but his poshness disallows it. Yeah. Whereas how it comes across is he's absolutely not interested whatsoever. And they even take pains to show him having things in common with the other yellow coats. Like someone, there's one where she comes in and goes, oh, thanks for lending me this book. And they have yeah. a little chat about it. Yeah. Where, where he has nothing in common with Gladys at all. Yeah. And they put those bits in as a comedy bit to make Gladys jealous. But yeah. what it's showing us is how little they have in common. And I don't really know 
what what she sees in him either, to be honest. The, the other thing is, I, I made a little bit of a habit as I was watching these episodes of Heidi High of watching Gladys when she wasn't speaking, watching right. her act while she was not the focus. And once you notice, like, she's got this look, and I, I guess it's supposed to be sultry, the way she stares at him, you know, sort <laughs> of full of desire. But it's, well, well sometimes it, it sometimes it lapses into gormless, I will say. <laughs> but but at best, she looks like a serial killer. She looks like she's plotting how to, you know, eat his brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> no, seriously, like the way she stares at him, this sultry look she has. I, I found it threatening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think it doesn't quite... I think they've missed the balance there. And I think all it needs is is for Jeffrey to be interested. But yeah. he can't. There's, and I think that was the intention and it just hasn't come across or something. What? what before we move on from uh, Gladys Pugh, what we do need to mention... We've already sort of both done bad impressions of it. You know, it is funny because she's Welsh. You know, the accent is well <laughs> yeah. played. And we, we've we obviously, you know, we know Windsor Davis in the Our Fault Mum. It, it is funny because she's Welsh. And it's not, I'm not singling out the Welsh here, but, you know, strong regional accents are mined for comedy gold. Yeah. We've got a fun-packed programme for you today. Holiday Princess Competition, Nubbly Knees Competition, Kiddies Fancy Dress, Bingo in the Hawaiian Ballroom, Ugly Face Competition, Competition in the Swiss bar and lots more. Can I just check? I, I'm sort of ninety percent sure Ruth Maddock is Welsh, isn't she? <laughs> she is Welsh, but she's really ramping up the accent. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, Welsh. that's exactly what I thought. She wasn't completely putting it on. And I and we we sort of played about with this earlier, but certainly the and there's a scene in this episode where she's doing the announcements. Yeah. And so she's kind of doing a posh voice, but she's still doing the thick accent. Yeah. It's like, oh, hello, campus, and all this yeah. kind of thing. Uh, only and Welsh. That, how dare you? <laughs> and, and the affected, oh, here's another thing I forgot. <laughs> no, that was Irish. That kind of but at the end, <laughs> the, well, I, I do like those scenes where she's, she's sat alone yeah. at the microphone and, uh, you know, she says Heidi hi and she pauses and you can hear the, the sound effect of the, the campus saying ho de ho yeah. in return. But then there's, there's a really weird thing that she does from time to time where she'll pop a record on and then start singing. Like, why are you singing? Why don't we just play a record with vocals on? Yeah, and uh, and singing. I I think she was a better singer, Ruth Maddock. Than I think that's probably fair. <laughs> this performance. She, she sings like you know, it's like your classic Les Dennis piano, isn't it? You know, you've got to you've got to be reasonably good to, to to do that off. Did I say Les Dennis? <laughs> yes. Sorry, Les Dawson. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to our episode. Okay, so yeah, we've had that scene of awkwardness in Jeffrey's chalet, and now we go to the what I think is just the morning briefing, the yellow coat briefing. Which is a good excuse. This happens most ex- most episodes. Just a good excuse to get all our characters in one room and move the plot forward and basically set up the episode. Yeah, which is exactly what happens here in the in the guise of a, a letter from Joe Maplin. And this is another I, I particular favourite of mine. Yeah, me too. Yeah, the way Simon Cadell reads the uh, the letters from Joe Maplin, and obviously they're written in this kind of very bro- broad accent. I don't know about you, but I really do enjoy reading these letters because um, <laughs> because Joe writes as he. Th- Thinks and they really are sincere. Get this into your thick heads. <laughs> that's that, that 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 that's the letter. It's not me. It's the letter. You've got to pull your socks up about your pool fun. Last week I dropped in on the Wormsley camp of a Sunday afternoon, and their pool fun were pathetic. 
<laughs> Absolutely fabulous. Uh, that 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 never got old for me as we watched it, the, those five series. I enjoyed that every time. No, it was really nice, and you get a really good idea of what Joe Maplin is, and that's quite important because he's this unseen hand mm. who is really wielding the power and doesn't give a toss about any of them. This is why Joe Maplin wants the officer class so he can tell them what to do. Right. Oh, that's right. what it is. Okay. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. That he's getting his own back for whoever shouted at him in the war. <laughs> yes. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, in this in this particular case, Joe Maplin says, your wheezers around the pool aren't good enough. Do something new. And so they, yeah, that, the rest of the episode is them coming up with and executing a plan to have better pool wheeze. And yes, they make that joke too. <laughs> Before we move off that scene, they also we get a, we get a nice look here at Spike and Ted. Which I, you remember earlier, I said that relationship between Gladys and Jeffrey is one of the mm-hmm. key. I, I think this is the other one, Spike yeah. and Ted. You know, that's the that's the other real uh, interesting dynamic within the group, and it's very much older and younger brother, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we get here a little bit of classic Spike and Ted badinage. Spike's reading the paper. And Ted says, oh, what's happening? Castro's having a purge. And what's all that greasy food? Which is a, which is a, 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 a classic gag that doesn't make any sense at all. But you know, it sounds like a joke. He's got the rhythm of a joke and we all laugh. And if that, and that probably sums up Ted's act. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do really like the Ted and Spike uh, dynamic. And mm. I think it's something that gets lost in later series. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it is mentor and mentee. It, it, mm. it and, and we'll get an, ep- we'll get a bit of this later in the episode where literally teaching him how to be funny. Yeah. And they are chalk and cheese in the, in the character sense. Ted is this consummate professional, you know, old hand knows every trick in the book kind of thing, yeah. including all the fiddles, including the tricks that you don't write in the book. Yeah. And Spike is naive, kind of fresh faced, just wants to entertain people. He's an idealist, funny, isn't he, Spike? And also doesn't think it's something morally wrong with conning people out of money. <laughs> yes. Exactly. But this is another. I mentioned the age thing already. I think you know Spike Jeffrey Holland has got. He plays Spike with this boyish charm. But he, but he's what is he forty? <laughs> he must be in his late thirties when this starts. It, we, he, he does he, feel like the character's supposed to be younger, doesn't he? Yeah, the character feels like this naive twenty-year-old. And you know, he, I'm not saying he looks ancient, but he don't look twenty. Uh, how old do you think Paul Shane looks? Well, that's a different question. <laughs> So, I'm going to say, all right, so what, I know what this conversation is. What, what's going to happen here is we're going to say, God, how old do you think Paul Shane is? Oh, God, he's ancient. And it's going to be younger than me, isn't it? Well, when they've made the pilot episode, the f- so the first episode, which you've, you've seen, yeah, he, uh, Paul Shane is 39. Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is the first time we've done this, the whole, how old is he? Oh, my God, he's older than you. Is that... that that means he's your age, not my age. Exactly, your yeah. age. <laughs> Jesus creepers. We all age differently. So, so you know, Ted is—he's got that ill-fitting suit. He's got the hair that looks like it's greased back with chip fat. He looks toxic. Ted looks ill. <laughs> he looks hungover. He looks—just—he <laughs> looks toxic. That's the word. And, you know, that might be really unkind to Paul Shane. Perhaps it's just a really good performance. I don't know. (laughs) Well, yeah, he does just seem constantly hungover. Eating a a full English breakfast. He looks like he's, he looks like he's nursing a pint and a roll up, even when he's not. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Spike, you know, Jeffrey Holland's always impeccably 
turned out his hair's brushed beautifully he looks fresh faced and you know there, there's a real day. physical contrast to them as well yeah exactly and it's set up in the character so spike's backstory is that he had a nice comfortable job in the income tax office uh-huh. and he's given it up because he wants to pursue his dream of comedy he's the office joker yes. who's who's made that leap and in 1959 that means even more than it does now yes. you know that was it's a it's a significant thing and it's something they come back to where he has these opportunities yeah. to get married and kind of but if he wants to get married he needs a stable life and this he's is not, not the prepared to do life. that yet yeah. It's a nice thing they just drop in every now and then. Again, as they go later on in the series, they start to drag on it a bit too much because mm. um, it, it doesn't have enough strength to hold it. But uh, And then the, uh, the opposite of that, Ted. This is his 17th season at, mm. at yeah. Maplin's. This is his living. During the off-season, he does panto, he'll do the clubs, that sort of thing. He's a club comic. Yeah. And he's bloody good at it. Yeah. And Paul Shane is great casting because that's what he was. <laughs> I mean, he essentially played, he was a club comic and earned a lot more money as a club comic than he ever did from Heidi High, or really? at least directly, as in terms of what he was getting paid for the show. Obviously, it raised his profile considerably. I guess so, yeah. But yeah, as opposed to Ted, apparently, Paul Shane was the one you went to when you needed to borrow some money because he always had it and he was happy to, to okay. see you over till next, next, next Friday. Yeah. As opposed to Ted, who's always on the make because he's gambles yeah. it away and, and drinks it away and is paying off his ex-wife. So what about Paul Shane then? Cause, because we all seen that YouTube clip of him singing at Pebble Mill. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I think that's perhaps a little unfair that he's, you know, he's sort of a bit laughed at there. Yeah. I don't know what the story behind that is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, clearly he's not one of the great tenors of uh, of the 20th century. But, you know, he seems like a likeable bloke. But he's, yeah, he's a club performer. He'd do the gags, finish with the song. And you yeah, can sing well, well enough what, to finish with the song. Variety, That's yeah. all you need. And yeah. everyone else would sing along with it. You pick the right song. For that. I'm really pleased to hear about that, that he was generous and popular because oh yeah, well, yeah they i like him. him and he's yeah he seems like a nice guy he's um he's from rotherham mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty local to us yeah his real name was george spate so they, mm. paul shane was obviously i don't know more showbiz i guess yeah, paul shane it sounds it's country and western isn't it shane <laughs> <laughs> and it's exactly what you expect of a 1950s rotherham teenager yeah. he, he worked down the pit and he did all sorts of jobs apparently he did his back in which is why he came out of the pit he was one of those people who started out doing club singing and then told yeah. jokes in between and then that became the He's better part of his act and apparently jimmy perry saw him on coronation street uh, and okay. there's a nice bit in the opening episode i don't want this to get about but i've been for an audition for television in manchester doing this new show it's about a lot of people that live in this mucky street apparently i'm dead right for it yeah i think i've got it <laughs> So, yeah, so he'd been in Coronation Street, you know, for, as a character for a while. And that's that's how he'd, they'd seen him. But apparently they interviewed loads of people for Ted. And he was one of the later mm. ones. They would, you know, they had to, they, they took a long time to find the right fit. But then, obviously, this made his name. And then he, he worked with the guys again. He did You Rang My Lord. Mm-hmm. And he did Oh, Dr. Beeching. The only, other, the only other sitcom thing I found was a show in 1991 called Very Big, Very Soon. Okay. Don't remember that. Didn't do a lot of business. But guess who wrote it? Go on. This is just an interesting little thing. Daniel Peacock. Oh, yeah. I know Daniel Peacock. He's the man from Vicar of Dibley. No, 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 yes. No, no, that's Trevor Peacock. Oh, it's his son, Daniel Peacock, who was in... Okay, sorry, I'm mixing them up. He's in a lot of the comic strip stuff, wasn't he? Yeah, and uh, and uh, the Porridge film that we looked at Of course recently. he was, yes, yes. Uh, and Daniel Peacock wrote one of the comic strip presents things, apparently. Mm-hmm. He did a yeah. bit of writing in his time. Yeah. So that was just a name that had just jumped out at me. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's it, really. He did a lot of panto. Pretty much living his Ted Bovis life, you know. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> 
So what about Jeffrey Holland? I'll be I'll be honest with you. I only really know Jeffrey Holland from from this and from Yurang Malord and Doctor Beeching. Jeffrey Holland's one of those people I follow on on Twitter and seems really lovely. Like he seems yeah. like such a nice bloke. Yeah. And so so I'm I'm very keen not to be not to be unkind to him. But like, I, I literally I've, I've not seen him in anything else. What else has he done? No, no, I agree. And everything I've seen, and I've again I've I've been to a few live events where he's been there, telling anecdotes and stuff. Yeah. Seems like an absolutely lovely bloke. But yeah, he I know his first involvement with Croft and Perry was the Dad's Army live show. They were doing a stage show and he was in the ensemble and then at some point took over the role of Private Walker. Okay. Possibly from John Barden who was who would uh-huh. have been doing it at yeah, the time. We talked about that before. And and then his early TV appearances is like he's in a couple of episodes of A and Hot Mom, he's in an episode of Dad's Out like literally like these kind of three four line kind of roles so they obviously liked him and then i don't know how in what sense they created this role for him i know that he was cast quite early on because they brought him in to do kind of audition stuff with people auditioning for ted Ted. Uh, they they were trying to find out who had chemistry with him yes and obviously that was paul shane uh, but du- during the 80s, he was in like Russ Abbott's Madhouse and he did stuff with Les Dennis okay. um, on sketch, kind of sketchy comedy yeah, sort of stuff. Sense. He's a pretty good impressionist, like uh, as in a Les Dennis level um, <laughs> impressionist, <laughs> which you d- they do play, uh, they do use uh, uh, at some points in Heidi High where they'll get him to do voices and characters. Well, there's a running gag like that, that he's constantly got a different outfit on. Every week he's got a yeah. different costume on that he's going to entertain the campers with. Uh, they, they get a lot of mileage out of that and it works. It works well. Yeah, yeah. And he's always made these... God knows where he gets the money to make these things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very elaborate, involved costumes. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a funny sauce bottle. <laughs> I'm a funny daffodil. What's yeah. that? I'm Toulouse-Lautrec. <laughs> So yeah, he he was in Urang Malord in quite a different character. To say yeah. that, you know, the other people they take along, it's like, yeah, they're playing the same thing. I've seen them all the time. I feel like Jeffrey Holland does a bit more variety of, of acting in him. Okay. And then he was in Oh Dr. Beeching as well. And in both those shows kind of plays the straight man. Yeah. And I think he does to an extent in Heidi High as well for Ted to play off of. But it's a little. There's a little bit more. It's, it's mm. a bit more loose in that. Mm. Uh, I know that for the last sort of ten years or so, he's and obviously you know he's in his well into his seventies now. Yeah. Uh, but it's pretty spry on it. He's been doing a show, a one man show, where he plays Stan Laurel. It's called yes. "This Is My Friend, Mr. Laurel," and it's about. I've seen it actually. Um, I saw it in Edinburgh one year, and it's Stan Laurel at the deathbed of Oliver Hardy and he's sort of talking to him and sort of talking about their life together and stuff. Right, okay. Well, again, as I've followed him on Twitter, I saw that he's been doing that for a while. That's good. There's a couple of points in Heidi High where I see him doing a Stan Laurel face and I was like, oh yeah, I see what he's doing there, you know. And not really kind of, oh, I'm doing a Stan Laurel impression, but he's picking up little mannerisms. It's yes. Let me ask you this then about the Ted and Spike relationship. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure they didn't have this sort of thing by the time you were working at a holiday camp, but... There's a clear distinction between camp host and mm. camp comic. So yeah. the host is the one who stands up there and kind of the band leader kind of thing. Yeah. The comic is the one who does the gurning and falling over. I think. Yeah, basically, I think that's a, that's certainly I can't relate to that from my time there, but that yeah, that's the dynamic, isn't it? Ted's in charge. Ted is the Ted is the ringmaster, whereas Spike is the clown. Spike is the clown, definitely, sometimes literally. And there's certainly no question that Ted Bovis would be thrown in the pool. Absolutely. No, 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 that's not going to happen. In fact, that is mentioned when they are discussing potential pool wheezers and uh, that gets short shrift from Ted. 
Yeah, well, well, shall we jump back into that? Because yes. that's that's what back they're doing. They figure out that uh, here's a good idea. Pool Wees have a shark attack. They do a they do a brainstorm. They come up with this idea of a shark attack, but nobody wants to be the shark. And and, and so Peggy volunteers. She wants to be involved. <laughs> Incidentally, I do like the way she's she's a chalet cleaner. That's her job. She cleans yeah, chalets, yeah, yeah. but she's always hanging around the entertainment office. Which you know, yeah. she wants to be a yellow coat. Fair enough. But those chalets aren't cleaning themselves, Peggy. Come on, <laughs> do your job, girl. Well, what I like about it, she's always kind of like, oh, I'm just tidying up these mugs. I'm just cleaning. Yeah, it. Yeah. Like it, they they manage to make it work. There is a bit of artifice about it. Or then she's like ironing <laughs> Jeffrey's trousers or whatever, um, taking on extra jobs just so that she can be around the entertainment. Yes, staff. she's keen to impress. Yeah, but anyway, she she volunteers to be the shark, and obviously we will come back to that. The 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 end of the show is the the big scene where she's sharking it up. Well, here's a question, Gareth. How come at no point in this conversation do they go, well, one of the twins can do it, or that other one <laughs> yeah. who stands yeah. in the background, that yeah. other yellow... Why don't but, one of the yellow coats do the, be the shark? Yeah, exactly. We've got these sort of background yellow coat characters, haven't we? And we've got some female ones and some male ones. We'll talk about the women later, but let's let, let's talk about the, the... There are three male yellow coats. I'm going to call them himbos. Yeah. That, um, and it's the same three guys all the way through, isn't it? The, the same it's three not, actors. no. The, it the not? other one changes. Right, so, so the first thing, yeah. you've got two twins. And they are billed in the You Have Been Watching at the end as the Web Twins. I, I yeah, genuinely have no idea what either names. of their names no are. No one knows what their names are. <laughs> and then there's a third one who's, you know, uh, sort of stands in between them as a sort of punctuation mark. Yes. And the, ac- the actor changes, although I, the character I genuinely hadn't realised that actor changed. No, so no one, no one realised. No I, I, feel, I, I feel a little rude about that. How many times does it change? Is it just two different people? Yeah, just the one change. Okay. But they, they, it is the same character. They don't bother trying to change that. Uh, where they do with some of the girls, they swap them around but yeah the, 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 it's, it's interesting that we have we'll talk about the female yellow coats later on but but we have those sort of not quite background characters but just in the at the back of the ensemble that we've got those we've got the the male and the female yellow coats mm. but the female yellow coats have more to do they have mm. more they have more lines they are more involved in the plot it's almost like the fellas are treated as they're just there as de- set decoration whereas the, with the yeah. women are not quite so much Correct. And the men do get a bit more involved later series. Uh, you know, they, they sort of, I guess they go, look, you've been here for four years. We better give you a line kind of thing. Well, I'll tell you what, as you know, when I put stuff out on social media and I sort of go on and I find, I clip screenshots so that I can put them up on Twitter and so on. And mm-hmm. it took me ages to find a, 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 a screen grab of any of those three men because they're just in the background they're not looking that you know they're not emphasized they're slightly out of focus it's like come on give me something and it, i think it was series seven before I, I managed to get a clean screen grab yeah and i obviously they've not gone on to be hugely famous for anything else the web twins as i understand were like a comedy yeah or a, cl- a club act they would do songs yeah. and but they were twins they just that was a double act that they were. and so they they were just brought in as sort of people who would be yellow coats and just have yeah. it in the background absolutely some heavy lifting and yeah and it's nice they get a bit more involved later on and they get to kind of have little parts in the in the gags but they never get particularly drawn out as characters and there's even like they make a joke about the other one the blonde one that yeah it, he just he basically goes oh i don't know i'm just here to be pretty to be looked at like he'll <laughs> say stuff like that and uh, you know it's a living isn't it you do nine series or however long it was that's, yeah, 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 that's not yeah. bad well, that's all we have time for this week, but do come back next time where we will continue our journey through this specific episode and look at all the other actors from Heidi High, of course. 
In the meantime, if you would like to follow us on the social media things, that's a great choice. We are at BritcomPod on Instagram and whatever Twitter is right at this moment when you're listening. And you can also find us on YouTube, if you search for British Sitcom History Podcast, where we have video accompaniments to the audio podcasts, of course, but also other videos that just go out on the YouTube alone. So do go and check that out. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.